Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. I think we're live. All right, welcome everyone, and welcome to a special event at the Salem Center for Policy, part of the celebrations around Free Speech Week. We're delighted to have with us today, Glenn Lowry. Glenn is the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of Social Science and Economics at Brown University. Glenn has done extensive work in microeconomic theory, industrial organization, natural resource economics, and the economics of race and inequality. Glenn, welcome, welcome to Policy at McCombs. That's what we call Thank it. You, Carlos. Carlos. <laughs> Thank you, Carlos. Thank you. Thank you, Carlos, good to be with you. Uh, we also have with us today, Richard Lowry, finance professor and Salem Center uh, senior scholar. So I guess, Richard, you, you're gonna start today. All right, just uh, to follow up on the welcome. Uh, th thanks very much, Glenn, for joining us during Free Speech Week. And I wanna be clear, this is the week where we talk about free speech, not the week where we have free speech. So UT in a recent ranking by the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education ranks 54 out of 55 schools in support for free speech. Uh, and I think that's a fairly generous ranking. Um, so, however, the university has encouraged us to participate in this free speech week and as an attempt to let a hundred flowers bloom. And we all know how that ended up last time. So we should probably be a little careful. Um, don't get the reference. You can Google it and find out all, all sorts of interesting things about Mal. Um, so, but with that, let's get started. So Glenn, how, how would you assess the current status of free speech and academic freedom at American universities? Well, there's something to be concerned about for sure. We've all heard all these different uh, anecdotes and so on. I can't tick them off uh, chapter and verse. I'd be curious to know what's going on in Austin that causes you to say 54 out of 55 is a generous ranking. Um, you know, I, I, um, I, I think uh, there is uh, there is the 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 you know there there's repression there there's uh, legislation where you know you make you make it illegal to say something and then there's the social pressure and the the kind of tyranny of consensus where you you uh, you, you don't have a, a, a robust debate because people are. Uh, are so vicious and they are told that they exact from someone who, who elects to deviate. Um, I tend to think that the latter is the more insidious, uh, but uh, I haven't heard your stories from Austin yet. <laughs> well, I mean, I could jump in with this a little. Uh, we did uh, have a recent proposal sent around that was going to require all applicants and all people applying for promotion to uh, to include a commitment to inclusivity and support for diverse populations and their uh, experience and future plans in this area, and that we wanted to put basically a diversity and inclusion member on every promotion committee uh, and every hiring committee to make sure that people were, uh, which is similar to what happened in, I mean, in California, this is basically being used as a political filter at this point. So that's one of the things that I'm sort of referencing, which I would say tends towards the first rather than the second. Well, it, it would be easy to just kind of get hysterical here and start saying, "Really, loyalty oath? I have to, I have to indicate my commitment to a very particular sort of ideological uh, position in order to be considered credible." Uh, yeah, it's, I think that's pretty much what they're proposing, though. Every and hiring committee. 
Every hiring committee, oh, this every is, promotion committee. This stuff is so laughable. I mean, sometimes I'm just wondering, it's the theater of the absurd. And of course, it's all going to collapse. It can't, it can't possibly be. And maybe all we're missing is ridicule. Maybe, maybe a willingness to call a spade a spade, so to speak. To well, I'm working on the ridicule. So for example, every hiring committee, here, let me simply observe the following. There are not enough committed diversity and inclusion activists who have the competency to assess the fitness of candidates that you could even begin to scratch the surface of putting someone on every hiring committee who would be helpful. What you're doing is you're putting a cop or a chaperone on the hiring committee. You're putting a, a diversity chaperone on a hiring committee. And in fact, you're saying the problem of racial bias refusing to acknowledge people of color who are qualified is so severe that we have to look over the shoulder of every hiring committee to vouchsafe that they are in fact being objective. That's, uh, exactly that, that's just madness. I mean, come on, it's, I mean, wait a minute. Am I the only one who can see that that's self-evidently ridiculous? It's ridiculous. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we got a letter. Uh, somebody leaked oh. the, this proposal to the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and they wrote a rather stern letter in response. So at least they see it, but yeah. But, but although although ridiculous although ridiculous Glenn is not is not uh, the the state of California has actually put that in place and there's a few other institutions that already have that in place and and at least not necessarily the cop but the the, the these, these statements right and in the state of California my understanding is that all those statements are graded by the cops mm -hmm. before the applications can move forward so there's a filter put in the very first step of the application process that somehow you know, dictates, gives a grade on, on people's essential views on those, on those issues. On okay, so now why isn't the obvious response here to refuse to participate in this and then litigate? Refuse to, refuse to sign, refuse to submit, and then if there's any consequence to your refusal to participate in this process, to go to court and, and test the issue of whether or not uh, these, uh, I mean, again, you know, you, you, you hyperbole is on the tip of my tongue and I'm holding myself back from calling people Nazis and things like that. Cause I mean, that's unproductive. I realize that that's unproductive, but yeah, it's going to, it's going to sound a little corny, but I just have to say this slippery slope, <laughs> slippery slope. What do you think this ends? You think they're finished? No. Okay. If, if you don't stop them now, slippery slope. Okay. So this is a battle worth fighting. I mean, really? Yeah, that's what they let want. Me, let me, let me, let me. So, in pointing to the slippery slope as, as, aspect of this, you, you, uh, um, I've heard you mention before in some other interviews the notion that we cannot. Uh, the only, I think you, you're quoting Thomas Sowell on that. That the only way we can get to a, a situation where there's no disparities of any kind in society is in a totalitarian society, right? Um, my concern here, and maybe that's you know tongue in cheek a little bit in bring, bringing that up, but uh, the concern here is that is that these this, this ideas of imposing equity on us, which is coming up, right? The notion that equity is equality of outcomes. We need the outcomes to be equal, regardless of any other aspects that we need to control for. Um, if we're able even to do that, even if that's legal and we don't win any kind of like of the court battles that might be coming up as a result of these policies and so on, uh, at the end of the day, that's not gonna solve anything, right? And my concern in terms of the slippery slope is that what do you see happening once once disparity is still going to appear, even if you're trying to put forward the most severe aspects of, of, of policies that try to create equity. Once those disparities appear later on, what's the next step, right? I think it's a very deep point, Carlos, that you're making. I, I, I think it's a very deep. Let me first of all explain what I meant 
channeling soul. I don't know if I was quoting him. I, I, I don't know a specific soul quote, but it's very much in the spirit of Thomas Sowell's writings over the many decades about race and culture. The groups are different. I mean, they have different cultures. They have different socialized, reproduced, historically engendered for whatever the reasons, uh, patterns and practices of behavior and values and norms and traditions and ideals and aspirations and institutions and uh, et cetera, rituals and, you know, et cetera. Uh, groups are different. Okay, so they are gonna all come out the same. Have you noticed that the Jews tend to be overrepresented in certain lines of uh, pursuit? I mean, they're, they're more Jews in academia. They're, they're Jews are uh, overrated, uh, over outnumbered or overrepresented, I should say, amongst the people, you know, in the, at the top of the legal profession, in the arts and the, et cetera. Okay, so groups are different. In Nigeria, the Igbo are relatively disproportionately, et cetera, et cetera, and I, you know, et cetera. I, I mean, I could give many, many examples. That would be Thomas Sowell, groups are different. So now, if you insist that in every venue of human engagement, there be some kind of proportionality of representation of people participating in every particular endeavor in line and whatnot, that's gonna cut against the consequences, I almost wanna say the natural inevitable implications of the differential patterns of tradition, custom behavior, and ritual and practice that constitute the very essence of differentiated groups. You say we've got groups. Well, if we've got groups, can we take the group seriously enough to recognize that we will then not have a even pattern of human behavior and at the acquisition of various talents and skills and specializations and mastery across all of those groups. Now, if you nevertheless insist that the outcomes have to be representative across all of these different things, then you're gonna cut against that. And in order to really assure your outcome of equality, you're basically gonna to have to override the prerogatives of autonomy and liberty that, they, that create the sphere of private life within which the groups manifest their different fruit and whatnot. Nobody's better than anybody else in this argument. No group is higher or lower, they're just different. Okay, so that would, that's the principled argument that if you insist on parity, you're gonna get tyranny. But I have, but but there's something else here, and it's called history. And as a consequence of history, this is an argument that I would make. I don't know who else would endorse it. African Americans suffer disadvantages with respect to some of the resources within our community required to develop our full human potential. You can't you can't have slavery and Jim Crow, and then all of a sudden everybody's going to Harvard. There were bad schools. There were segregated neighborhoods. There was poverty. There was discrimination. I agree. History dealt us a bad hand. It had consequences in terms of development. So if you don't, and this is the point, address yourself to the underlying developmental deficits induced by a history of oppression, and instead do a cosmetic end run around the hard work by creating titular equality, optics equality, it's a horrible thing. Not only does it not address the development problem, it invites contempt, lying, uh, shame, because everybody really knows what's going on. And I could go on about this for a long time because I'm very, very concerned. I'm very concerned that we have bought in hook, line, and sinker to this diversity, inclusion, and equity thing such that not enough black physics professors becomes an issue for the physics department. Whereas in fact, it's an issue for uh, quantitative education at the secondary and uh, early college uh, education level where people are not learning calculus and differential equations and functional analysis 
which is what they need to do in order to be able to engage the literature and become a physicist. I just give physics as an example. You could have given a dozen different fields. So, so this is horrible, in, in, in my opinion. I mean, this is, uh, and, and I just want to underscore this. Everybody knows mediocrity when they see it. If you insist on 10% because Blacks are 10% of the population in all these fields and you haven't done the developmental work, you're going to get mediocrity. I did not say any particular person. I, this is statistics. This is an inevitability. If you're selecting at the right tail of a normal distribution and you're taking the top two and a half percent, Brown admits 1,800 out of 30,000 applicants. And you have different cutoffs for the kids that you're selecting, their SAT scores and whatnot, for black and white. Either the selected criteria in SAT scores uncorrelated with post-admissions performance. It's uncorrelated, in which case, why are you using it in the first place? But we all know it's not uncorrelated. Or there's going to be a difference on average in post-admissions performance between the two racially defined populations who were selected according to different criteria. We can run the Monte Carlo experiment. There's no way around this. This is going to happen every time if you have enough people. So here's the fact. The fact is that in the most elite venues committed to affirmative action and using different criteria to constitute the student bodies by race, there are objective differences in the performance of those students after they are admitted. That's a mathematical necessity. Now, what happens? Grade inflation happens. What happens? People switch out of the STEM disciplines and they go into the uh, soft social sciences because they can't cut it in physics and biochemistry. What happens? People lie and pretend like the differences in performance don't exist. What happens? Disappointed students, unable to realize their human potential because they've been misassigned, uh, uh, end up bitter and blaming racism for the failures that they have uh, been that have been foisted upon them. Uh, but I said I could go on for this about a long time. You, you're going to say I'm against affirmative action. Well, actually, I'm in favor of African American dignity. I'm actually, you know, what's really equality? What 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 kind of equality? What's the quality? of equality? Is it equality of representation and headcount? Or is it equality of actually being able to hit the ball over the fence, which is how they make you into the Hall of Fame? I mean, it, what kind of equality? Equality of honor? You know, where you don't have to prove anything because it's already manifest in what it is that you do. Or a kind of bluff equality, a kind of phony equality where you tell people to shut up when they ask you to put up. They ask you to put up, you tell them to shut up. You're racist because you asked me to show that I was actually qualified. If I can follow up just a second, there, there does seem to be this very big focus on sort of representation at the upper level, like getting 10% of the professors to be physics. And my sense is I don't see nearly the level of concern for, say, the fact that high schools in certain areas are pretty terrible and the, the the emphasis does seem to be very much on uh, people we talk to are very worried about you know, representation within the university and I nobody seems to be the, the, the set of people who are interested in like school reform at the level that you would be uh, I would sounds like you'd be arguing we, we maybe we should fix you know, low income schools what, what do you think come would do you have any idea what the source that it like why do people care so much about what's happening up here and so little about what's happening to people who are actually sort of suffering at the uh at the low end and primary and secondary school well uh, richard i think 
I think what people are going to say is you can do both. It's two different things. Uh, and uh, then we, uh, because I'm inclined to agree with the spirit of your question, are put in the position of justifying the relative weight that we want to put on the one versus the other. Uh, and then they're going to make these all these various kinds of arguments about role models and, you know, the elite venues being gatekeepers into access to positions of influence and uh, remuneration. So, uh, you know, they, they're, they're going to say, as I heard um, a, um, I believe, city council member in New York City, an African-American, I don't remember his name. This is the argument over the specialized exam schools in New York, uh, mm -hmm. the Bronx High School of Science and the Stuyvesant and whatnot, and how they admit students and the underrepresentation of Blacks because they use a single exam. You have to score high on the exam in order to get in. Asians are vastly overrepresented amongst those students. And the Asians are arguing, don't take away the test. That's the way that we get in. And it's actually neutral. It doesn't favor anybody. It's a test and you can study for it and you can do well on it or not. Don't take, that's our lifeline. And the guy, the city councilman, very much against the current uh, status quo, uh, wanting to see more blacks and wanting to get rid of the test. He said, well, we can, you know, uh, y'all are arguing that we should work on the other schools who are not feeder schools preparing these kids for there, but we can do that too. We can, you know, he's, he's saying we can do that also. So that's what they're going to say. But they don't seem um, to actually ever get around to doing that part as far as- No, I and it, you need a political analysis, wouldn't you? I mean, the squeaky wheel kind of thing like that. And the way people can uh, miraculously find their own self-interest somehow implied by the thing that they think is necessary for justice. So, I mean, I was struck by a Princeton put out a faculty progressive faculty put out a statement, a list of demands of what they wanted from Princeton University. And I was struck how many of the demands were, we want a person of color to be the director of this center. We want more resources to go to this institute. And I thought Princeton could respond, uh, it was tongue in cheek, um, uh, Ice Gruber, I believe that's the name of the president of Princeton University. I was recommending tongue in cheek in my podcast that he might respond as follows. He might respond, we are deeply concerned about race and racial inequality in America. And we're going to take all of that money that we would have used for minority faculty and recruitment, and we're going to create a center where we're going to study poverty. We're going to get the best sociologists, whatever color they are. We're going to put people in the field to gather data. We're going to do experimental research. We're going to partner with a hospital to do a public health thing. And, and we're going to spend a billion dollars of our endowment attacking the, uh, the, the question of poverty. But in the, the instrumentality that we're going to use to do it, we'll be colorblind. We're, we're going for the best people we're, we're, because we're serious about solving the problem. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and that's, see how that would fly, and it, it would get nowhere <laughs> yeah, right. because it doesn't feather anybody's nest. I mean, I'm sorry, but I think that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, is it you know, if you really so this this if you're if you're really interested in helping the broad population instead of the elite, you want the very best people. Regardless, if it all turns out to be you know Asian kids and Indians. Uh, who are most adept at helping the lower classes, that would seem like, yeah, I think that that's sort of part of the, that idea, right? Um, well, that would be my idea, but it would be a radical idea in this content, you know, in the diversity and inclusion universe. And then again, people are going to have, they're going to have their identity epistemology arguments. You've heard of identity politics. Well, I'm worried, I'm worried about identity epistemology, which, which is the claim that your, your racial identity somehow gives you an insight on what is true. Uh, or 
gives your voice more credibility in stating what is true to a larger public than someone else's voice would have. This is, this is not where we want to be. Uh, but, you know, I mean, many, many examples. Even uh, the white ethnographer who embeds herself in an inner city community and lives there for three years and gets to know everybody in the housing complex and what's going on in their lives and then sits down and writes a book about it. Turns out that if you're Alice Goffman and you write such a book called On the Run, there will be a cottage industry of ethnic studies professors who will attack uh, the validity of your reportage because of your race. And they will say, your motives because you're a white person examining the lives of black people must be exploitative and you are objectifying them. When I heard this argument, this is an actual argument that actually happened in ethnography, but it could be repeated in other uh, fields of this kind, anthropological and uh, sociological inquiry. When I heard that argument, it made me sick to my stomach. Really? Oh, oh, the black person who goes and embeds has no motives. They don't have an agenda of their own. They're, they're not grinding an ax. They, they, they don't have class resentments for vis-a-vis the people that they're dealing with. They don't have their own racial ideology that they might be using those people to project. But a white person, in virtue of being white, necessarily has a nefarious agenda. This is supposed to be academia. These people are supposed to be seeking truth. Let me say let, let me let me get back, Richard. Right, right. Let me let me get back to 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 the so so again going back to the sort of notion that that um, uh, the academic freedom and the freedom of speech that we need. So that's essentially somebody being attacked by their ability to conduct work because of their 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 group identity. Like, well, you cannot. You, therefore, you're not allowed to speak in this particular direction or to study this particular topic. Because Carlos, Carlos like, let me just mention there were other criticisms of Alice Goffman's work that did not have to do with her race, yeah. and I'm putting those to the side. I'm not un, I'm not unaware of them. Okay, but but this did happen. What I said happened did happen, and it made me sick. That's right. That's right. That's one 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 of the aspects. Right? So, so so this 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 you know probably has has implications not only in things that are directly related to 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 race anything associated with race these days, but but in other areas of social science as well, where perhaps some preconceived ideas or some notions that are now you know not to be said in front of polite company, for example are being stifled as, as a result of, of, of the environment around us. So, so can you think about other facts, other issues in terms of, you know, an econ research or social science research? There are things that, you know, we might know the answer to it, we might have some facts, but we don't want to talk about them because it's really dangerous. Or if I bring it up, you know, you might get canceled or, or, or something like that. Well, I think we could all think of some of these uh, examples there in front of us every day. I'm not an expert. Uh, epidemiologist, but you you can't tell me that the battle over the COVID, the complex of issues about COVID, all of them about public health practices and vaccines and remedy has not been freighted by a kind of political, you know, a cloud, you know, where uh, uh, the actors and the actors include the president of the United States, who is an interested party, who has a, you know, whatever. And they also include the Democratic Party and the very, you know, and, and they include the academic centers of um, research for public schools of public health and whatnot, uh, have, have their own, you know, kind of concerns. And, and, and it, it, you know, who am I going to take seriously? So does herd immunity actually have any scientific legitimacy as a construct for thinking about how to react to a pandemic situation? That question is fraught. I have not to have a, I, I don't know. And, and in fact, in fact, part of the reason that I don't know what to believe 
is because the the cats are lobbing grenades at each other with such intensity that I, I'm kind of left here wondering, you know, what, what sources are credible? I mean, you know, that uh, whatever that uh, declaration that was great, just- Great Barrington Declaration. Great Barrington Declaration. And I, I sent it to my friends who I think know, and some of them write back saying, yeah, you ought to take that scene. Other ones write back, yeah, yeah, like that. And I, I like, I don't even know what happened in Sweden. I can't get a real good factual account. The Swedes said, her immunity, well, what has happened? Well, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. And everybody is so tendentious in the way in which they get climate change. Now, I'm an economist. I have to tell you, I, I don't, you know, I'm not an earth scientist. I, you know, I read the newspaper like the next person, but I'm pretty sure it's a hard problem knowing what costs to incur. The dynamic structural evolution, both of the climate, but also of the economic activity that's engendering the, the carbon uh, emissions that's of contributing climate. I'm pretty sure it's a hard problem. For example, how much weight do I put on present generations versus future generations? You think you know the answer to that question? That's a debatable question. I don't know the answer to that question. For example, how much optimism should I ascribe to the possibility that technological innovation as yet unknown will help to relieve some of these issues so that if I have a dynamic program where I'm trying to weigh past future and whatnot, my discount factor has to take into account the possibility of technological innovation creating a new set of uh, decision nodes on my tree or whatever it is. I mean, you can write this down as a dynamic program. Uh, those are not scientific questions, not necessarily. How much cost? What about the equity implications? What, what you know? I, so the people who just say, shut it down, I don't want any more fossil fuels. I mean, come on. And if you speak against that, if, if you say, well, well, I'm, I'm not so sure. Or, or if you invoke subtle nuances, like, it's a multiplayer cooperative game. I don't have a bludgeon that I can make other people do stuff. Can I define my interest and then act on behalf of my interest? Are you going to force me to be a humanitarian whose objective function is the global community when nine-tenths of humanity are not playing by the same game? Did that make any sense for me? Now, if that sounded like something that Donald Trump would say, that's because although he's not, he doesn't know any game theory, it is something that Donald Trump would say, okay? It also happens to be, in my mind, a relevant factor to bring to the table when you're trying to make a decision. It's a decision problem, okay? About how much cost to weigh in the benefit in the intertemporal problem that you're trying to solve. These things don't have simple answers, but, but the, the combatants, I will be called a climate denier for what I just said. They're gonna call me a denier. They think, they're over, they think the argument's over because they can call me a name when I'm simply asking a question that no one really knows the answer to. Anyway, so, so the answer is yes, I, I think you could, uh, you could model Race and IQ, Charles Murray. I just read his book, uh, Human Diversity. It's not a bad book. It, you know, think what you wanna think about it. It's not a bad book. It's an interesting book, Brave Man. He takes on a impossible issue. But is it possible that in the long uh, evolution of, uh, of the Homo sapien species, uh, as we have come to constitute the contemporary world through our migrations out of East Africa and et cetera, you know, and living apart for eons and whatnot, is it possible that any consequences of that separation of the human species into these uh, relatively isolated uh, subpopulations that bred within themselves for a long time could have any biogenetic 
residue that would have any implications for social outcomes. How could you rule that out a priori? You can't possibly know that. I didn't say anything was true. <clears throat> I just said that you could not preclude inquiry about these things a priori and think you were dealing with the truth. If you did that, that's a political move. It's, it, it's you're saying, um, I don't wanna know something. But at least be honest if that's what you're saying and don't put yourself up on a high horse and think that you're defending morality. I could give many, many examples. So, so in, 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 this, in this mass incarceration, I just want to put one more thing on the table. It's supposed to be about racism. Maybe it's about violent criminal behavior in a relatively small number of people within a marked population. I mean, you know, uh, James Q. Wilson and, and I have been a critic of this is the late political scientist at Harvard and then at UCLA. Um, uh, James Q. Wilson, a conservative, uh, maybe godfather of the, you know, buildup of, of prisons that started in the 1980s and uh, really reached uh, very high levels by the end of the 20th century. This is James Q. Wilson. Uh, he wrote a book with Richard Herrnstein called Crime and Human Nature. And uh, in the book, they tried to understand what were some of the factors, the uh, including uh, the factors that were that had to do with temperament and how, how the glandular system works and different, you know, the, the brain functions and whatnot that, that might be correlated with criminal behavior. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not endorsing that particular research strategy as something that I would fund if I were at the National Institutes of Justice or something. Maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. But they were called Nazis for that book. They, they were, they were, you know, Wilson, Herrnstein, you can't hide, you believe in genocide. I still remember the chant that rang out around Harvard Square. This is going back 30, 35 years. Uh, but, but, you know, so, so there, all of that is out there, all of that and, and much, much more. I have many examples beyond my knowledge, I'm sure could be cited. So um, we talked a bit about the environment <coughs> and that Richard brought up some, some issues that we, maybe our concern about uh, where we're moving as an institution here. But um, recently in the wake of George Floyd's death, you, uh, the president of Brown wrote a letter uh, that you took a lot of, you were, I think quoting you, that you were offended and upset by the letter. Um, and I guess that letter probably speaks to some of these dynamics that we're talking about in terms of creating an environment around us. So tell us a little bit about your, what was your reaction to the letter and the things that, that you wanted, you felt compelled, you know, compelled to respond to. It was a dear colleague letter that came from the president of the university and that declared the university's solidarity with the movement for um, uh, against anti-black racism and on behalf of racial justice. That, that's what it was. Uh, it was signed by the president of the university, the provost, uh, by the uh, top uh, administrative officers of the university from the general counsel down to the portfolio manager and the deans of uh, the major subunits of the university, the dean of the faculty, the dean of the School of Public Health and so forth. Um, and it was political. It was a letter that basically could have been written by a Black Lives Matter enthusiast. I mean, it basically declared America's at a crisis, racism, unrelenting white supremacy uh, has had its, and we have black people every hour of every day must bear up under the, et cetera. Um, and, and uh, it offended me, and I, I'll tell you about it. I mean, I first wanted to simply note, I published the letter in the City Journal. I wrote it to a friend. It was a letter I wrote to a friend in which I was reacting to the letter, saying this is what I think. And I decided to send it to the City Journal so that the world could see it. And nothing I have done, 
maybe ever in my life. It's engendered so much response. And the City Journal tells me that a gazillion people are, le- you know, it's gotten retweeted and whatnot. It's gone small viral, not viral the way real viral, but, you know, it's, it's gotten a lot of play. So there's a lot of, you know, response out there. And I've been asked many, many, many times about it. So here's why I was offended. I, I, I think there were really mainly two. Uh, re- it was signed by every administrative officer of weight in the university community. So it was a document stating the policy of the university. We're a university, a university. <clears throat> so now the university had taken a position. It's as if the university had come out and said, vote for uh, Biden or something. It's, it's as if the university had come out and said, um, uh, I think uh, we should go to war against China or against uh, whatever, you know. It, it, it really, it's, it's, as, it's as against the university had taken a position in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm not saying professors having ideas. Of course, they should have ideas. I'm saying the university. Um, suppose you didn't think what that letter said. Amazingly, these people are so smugly self-righteous that it doesn't even occur to them that serious people might not share their view of the world. It was put forward with such uh, 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 self-confidence. You know, it, she could not have had a moment of doubt. I can't imagine anybody in the room raising their hand and saying, maybe we shouldn't do this. Okay, because we're righteous. We're on the right side of history. Well, those riots, the looting of those, uh, the burning down of those bodegas, the attacks on those police officers, the riots, were not exactly um, un, uh, with, with, you know, unimpeachably just. They were, they were not, what you're supposed to do in the face of that kind of outbreak in your society is not straightforward. It's not univalent. It's not one thing. Uh, some people are going to say, well, people have a lot of pent up frustration and we do have a, a ignoble and shameful history and we ought to cut them some slack. And other people are gonna say, the first order of government is to secure me in my person and my property. No grievance justifies burning down an immigrant's bodega where their whole life has uh, been in that because you're angry. Nothing justifies. Other people are going to say that. Some people are going to say the cops are, uh, are bigots uh, and they are a kind of, uh, uh, you know, force that has been imposed upon the community and that meets out of et cetera, punishment and violence. And other people are gonna say the cops are what brought the murder rate in New York City down from 2,500 a year to under 500 a year within a single mayoral administration or two. They're gonna say that. Okay, now here's what I say. Could there please be space within the university for us to discuss these matters civilly? Because they're not self-evident. But what did my president do? By blasting this thing to every alumnus to every member of the student body and to every member of the faculty and the staff with the imprimatur of the entire upper rank of the university, she precluded the deliberation about the substantive matters at hand for which the university exists to carry out. What kind of malpractice is this? What, What kind of leadership of a precious institution of reflection and edification and and human excellence is this. She joined the parade. Christina Paxson and her colleagues jumped on a bandwagon. 
that's despicable, in my opinion, for the leadership of a university to do. We are there to think it through. Our raison d'etre is to think it through. She thinks she knows the answer? Despicable. It infuriates me even now. Yeah, I mean, we got our own version. We got the letter from our dean uh, and the, you know, it included the, many of the same boilerplates, but what struck me was we had silence is not an option. And I found that particularly like, not only is this the position of our business school that these are the, this is the righteous side, but you are required by your dean not only to not speak against it, but to speak out. In and I thought that that really was a, like a, a thick. But again, people have no sense of self-consciousness because this is ridiculous. It's absurd. The only fit response is ridicule. The only fit response is, some, is satire, some kind of cartoon or something where you depict these people in grotesque caricature and you represent the idiocy of what it is that they're, they're silence is complicity. You must speak out and affirm what I say. I mean, well, what, what were the reactions of your colleagues? And, and uh, did Christina Paxton engage with you after the, your response? No, she didn't. Um, and 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 I don't know. I mean, some a few colleagues wrote and said, uh, you know, thank you, and we agree. And I expect most most didn't. Although the the ones who haven't haven't said very much to me. COVID uh, shutdown has inter interrupted the social intercourse, so that I'm not passing people on the sidewalk, walking from my office to my classroom, which would allow me at least to read their body language or whatever. Uh, I mean, I, you know. Armed security at this talk, by the way. Uh, pardon, I'm sorry? The COVID shutdown is also why we don't need armed security at your talk, as we've had to have in the past at some of our more controversial events. Well, you know, that's thuggery. Yeah. Again, it needs to be called what it is. That's thuggery. They should be called thugs. Their, their faces should be put on posters. They should be one ads wanted thug who would not allow me to speak. The only reason we're here, by the way, is so that people can speak to each other. This thug uh, arrogates to themselves the right to determine what can be said here. Are you okay with that? Put a, put a banditry uh, mask on them and, and put a bounty on their heads. Of course, they would accuse me of fomenting violence if I did that against violent thugs. All right, so let, let's move on, move on to, to uh, okay, we, we sort of identified the problem. We know that, that we live in a place where maybe some ideas are not tolerated these days or, 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 or the social sort of norms around us makes us, you know, uh, have to abide by some, some norms, some, 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 some views that, you know, if we don't share, we just better be quiet and, and just walk with our heads down. Uh, that's, that's what seems to be the, the, what we need to do, right? And part of it is, is because there is a monolithic or, or a tendency that universities have had in the past 40 years to become very unidimensional in their thinking, especially in social, in social aspects. Juan, um, do you have a, a view why that is the case, that we got to a place where now the type of diver intellectual diversity or viewpoint diversity at a university? So, you know, when I, I want to contrast, for example, the notion of, of I, mean, I want to call conservatives because that, that's loaded with a political party. I don't want to talk about a political view of the world. I want to talk about things like, for example, a disagreement between folks that might think from a classical liberal perspective to think that equality of opportunity is what we should be focusing on versus equity of outcomes, which is like, again, the orthodoxy seems to be uh, put in front of us, right? That kind of lack of viewpoint diversity seems to be overwhelming at this point. And of course, that correlates with things like, you know, representation in, in political parties as well, what kind of parties 
faculty tend to vote for or kind of money, places they give money to, et cetera, et cetera. So we got to a point where there's very little intellectual diversity in those directions. Um, so why is that? And is there something to be done? My honest answer is I don't know. I don't know the answer to either question. I can talk for a bit. Um, I think you need some, you know, very big think kind of culture, his, cultural historian who could, who's read every book that's been written since 1945 and can track the, you know, the evolution of a lot of different strands. I mean, of course, there is the civil rights movement and the Black power movement in the 60s and whatnot. And there is the anti-war sensibility. There is the economic evolution of, uh, you know, the people's belief about American social policy and economic policy. And uh, there is the Cold War that has come and that has gone. There is postmodernism and other uh, trends of intellectual enthusiasm. There is African, uh, Afro-American, uh, Latino, Hispanic, women's studies, gay studies and whatnot, which have these area studies that have created their own uh, kind of dynamic. Uh, I mean, so there are a lot of, there are a lot of strands. I mean, I, so I don't know uh, what accounts for the evolution. I, again, I could, I could opine, I could, we could talk about uh, various cases and whatnot. Uh, what's going on in the STEM uh, area. I'm, I'm very, very interested in the kind of relativistic you know, kind of, I, I, I use the word postmodern, I may not be using it entirely correctly, but but this sensibility of uh, kind of, you know, you think science has got a uh, uh, rock bottom answer that's objective and independent of power relations in society. But in fact, science is a vehicle for structural, the propagation of structural racism or the perpetuation of patrimony or the, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm sure those books are out there. I have not read those books. Uh, I would have hoped that the scientists weren't listening to those books, but it appears that, you know, with the various things that I can see happening, probably some of the scientists or at least the committees that are are, are reading those books um, in the social sciences and the humanities, uh, a very, very different uh, story. If I say Christopher Columbus discovered America, people are just going to go crazy. They're going to, they will go, they will hang me. They will take me out and they will hang me. If I say a person who is gay has a sexual preference, uh, I will get I will get strung up because I can't suggest that it has anything to do with preference. They have an orientation, not a preference. You you know, don't you know that that's offensive? Whatever the humanities, I, I guess the way novels are read in 2020 is very different from the way classic novels were read in, uh, you know, 1850. I don't know that you can write a romantic novel anymore, et cetera. So that, you know, human and the social sciences, again, the sociology, anthropology is very different. So you see. Is economics uh, and economics uh, uh, has suffered from this as well? Oh, well, suffered. It depends on your point of view, but yeah, yeah, I would say so. Uh, I would, I would say that when people suggest, as has been suggested, that we economic scholars must tend to cite inclusively. Okay, what that means is make sure, if you can, that there's some women and people of color cited in your in your citations. Now, it might seem like a small thing because after all, citation counts count for evaluation of the influence of a person's research, which counts for assessment of the fitness of a person for promotion and so on. So citations matter. Writing an article that gets a lot of citations is a good thing. But when they said cite inclusively, I, I, my thought was, well, what's the, what's the predicate there? 
that heretofore, before this uh, diversity and inclusion education seminar, I was not citing inclusively, which is means to say I was citing dead white males. I was, I was citing my people. Well, no, I wasn't. I was reading the journals and citing the relevant articles. Why would you impugn my motives and my integrity? Why do you put this onus on me to work on behalf of social justice when I'm just trying to write a paper? Okay, I mean, and then the subtext of that, of course, is if a person wrote a paper that wanted to be cited because it got the attention of people at the frontier of the discipline who were doing innovative work, you wouldn't have to tell me to cite their paper. I'd cite it because it was good. Y your campaign to cite inclusively is a cover for the lack of the acuity and the uh, research relevance of the, of the productivity of the people whose uh, careers you're trying to boost. You know, economics is racist because we use advanced mathematical methods and statistical inference and in uh, the model manipulation and whatnot. We're racist because we're not sociologists and we don't inquire into the, you know, you know. Uh, I... But where do we go from here? Where do we go in terms of like, you know, is a solution? I think I remember you having a conversation where you pointed out like, well, maybe we should create a a department of conservative studies as a, as yeah, a that was just idle debate. speculation. That's yeah. probably not a very, it's probably not a, <laughs> probably not a very good idea. Uh, I, I, you know, and I've also said maybe people who give money to universities ought to stop doing it. You know, I, if I may, could... maybe the consequence of a year of, of COVID uh, cloistered uh, zoom mediated uh, virtual intercourse will take some of the monopoly power, the kind of entry cost of, uh, the sunk uh, brick and mortar and campuses and, you know, kind of, in, you know, that, that's very hard to replicate and it's hard to break in is, you know, getting into the Ivy League as a de novo startup, that's, you know, that's essentially impossible. We'll take that away because perhaps people like your humble servant here, Glenn Lowry, who might want to give a lecture on, oh, let's say free speech in the academy, or might even want to give a course. I would be able to have 10,000 people subscribe to my course. We'd get some assistance and we'd work it out. And we put the rest of these jokers out of business. Why, why pay to fly across the country and sit someplace for four years and be lectured at by a, a Marxist, by cultural relevance, by someone who knows better than you and, and uh, you know, is, is trendy and is faddish uh, and is lightweight and insubstantial? Uh, as many of these people actually are. Why not just sign up for Glenn Lowry's course, read the great books. Lowry goes to the bank with a gazillion dollars. Uh, and, you know, I mean, of course, I'm joking, I'm joking. But, but- Not really. Why? But, yeah, but, why? I mean, I'm joking about Lowry because I'm too old to do anything, but <laughs> there's there's still time to shake things up uh, a little bit. And Because the smugness, I'm sorry, the smug certitude of these people who 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 are- wrong in my opinion about an awful lot of stuff so i i wanted to just follow up on that a little bit it, uh it's interesting like when you see firms in this sort of situation like in any other industry if you saw firms with this level of groupthink and inability to respond and, and we, we don't expect the firms to get better we expect them to kind of fail and be sold for scrap right yeah but it seems like in our industry, we like 
entry is incredibly difficult. And no matter how badly you're doing your job, nobody exits, right? We never see Brown University closing shop because the president is, you know, writes a not very clever letter that sends the university down a, a bad path. Like we don't, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be any level at which you can screw up a university to the point where it actually closes down. And this seems like a kind of interesting IO issue of like, we, we've insulated ourselves from entry and exit so much, but you seem to be proposing entry, right? You think that's- I'm we, proposing, yeah, kind of proposing, quote unquote proposing. Uh, I was just gonna say, you know, you got strata of institutions. There may be a uh, exit down toward the bottom end of the- exit at the bottom, but- uh, I'm just going to say you got a lot of, uh, you know, non-competitive forces in the market. So I have, I'm not an expert on the economics of higher education. It is an interesting set of IO questions. I agree. Uh, but technology is on the move. So and if, I, 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 yeah. jump in, we, we have one sort of apropos question in the Q and a from a wisely anonymous attendee, uh, who's asking, um, we says, thanks for, this, uh, thanks for the work and great discussion. What would be your advice to non-tenured faculty who would like to combat the suppression of free speech on campus in its various forms, whether conformity or otherwise? Do you have any advice or is it just keep your head down and don't? Yeah, so the natural thing to say is keep your head down and uh, you know this is not a fight that you need on top of everything else that, you, that you've got going. And if you actually do have contrarian views uh, you can uh, be sure that any ambiguity in the tenure evaluation process will be resolved in your disfavor. <laughs> so you don't want to give us a cudgel to, to beat you with. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, uh, if it's war, it's war. I mean, if we're fighting for the integrity of, of, of Western civilization, I, mean, I know I exaggerate, but you know what I mean? I mean, if it's, if it's a fight worth fighting, it's a fight worth fighting. So these loyalty oaths, you know, Tell me that you're committed to diversity and inclusion. I'm, come on, that's. I I think a principled argument could be made that I'm not signing that. Yeah, and, and you're not hiring me to to, uh, uh, or maybe that you are hiring me to to further your political mm -hmm. agenda. But uh, uh, this is an this is supposed to be a university. I mean, if I asked you to pledge a loyalty to the United States of America before you were permitted to teach here or the Catholic Church, of course, you would run screaming from the room. But you're being asked to, but I'm being, I'm asking you to pledge loyalty to um, the, the program of diversity and inclusion. What, suppose I think there is no issue. Suppose I think the university is not racist. Suppose I think groups are underrepresented because they haven't measured up in terms of the criteria of selection. Uh, I, I got, I'm, I'm from this part of the country and my heart goes out to the people who live there. I'm not, we're global institutions. Everyone who comes here, I mean, that's another factor altogether. We, we are open, global institutions. Every recruit who comes here from Southeast Asia is supposed to identify with your political crusade to deal with, quote unquote, people of color. Well, have you taken a look at the planet? Amongst the many billions are mostly people of color, and they're mostly living on $15 a day. How about if we concern ourselves in this great institution with them and not with, um, and then this is where the ridicule would enter in and the caricature would enter in because you would exaggerate the disfavoring features of some of these people who are making these ridiculous arguments. Well, I like the caricature, you know, I'm, a, I'm Brazilian by origin. I grew up in Brazil, I moved to the US as 26 years old, I think. So you can maybe tell by my accent. 
Um, I have no idea what my make, racial background is. Brazil is a, is a, you know, is a big mix of lots of different people. Um, and when I see our, our, our you know, people in leadership positions saying that our faculty should reflect the composition of the state of Texas, I was like, uh-oh, there goes my job because, you know, <laughs> I don't think there's enough Brazilians here. So I don't know where I fall. So, I, you know, I don't think there is a, a, a share for a Brazilian. So anyway, so I do worry even on a personal level about this. <laughs> Can I just observe, I mean, this, to me, this is really so important because we're 50 years down the line on this. We're, you know, this is 2020. I mean, affirmative action goes back to 1970. Uh, the Baki case is like 1978. Uh, you know, there, this is an argument the country's been having for a half century. So basically, we need to own up to the fact that diversity and inclusion enthusiasts, that you're institutionalizing as a permanent regime the use of racial characteristics to assess the fitness of people to engage in these uh, in these various enterprises. Now, you okay with that? I mean, you know, I'm not. I mean, I think that's a, a, a deep mistake. I think it's a it's a tragic mistake, and I could elaborate on that. But I do think we ought to be cognizant of what it is, in fact, we bought into. This is not transitory anymore. So underrepresented minorities, historically underrepresented groups, they make up these acronyms, hugs, historically underrepresented groups. Do you know what that is? That's a way of excluding Asians from the people of color. It's transparent. How can it be justified? Yeah, it's very sad. I have to explain to my seven-year-old half Korean child that he's going to have trouble getting into college because people don't like the fact that he's part Asian and he should never use his middle name because that might reveal the fact that he's part Asian. It strikes me as very sad that that's- Well, I, I hope he doesn't have trouble getting into college, but I, you, you could be right. Let me ask another question here from the Q&A. Um, what would be your advice to university administrators who share your concerns about homogeneity of thought on campus? So what would be the first steps, for example, a university, uh, a university president could take to move things in a better direction? Have you seen anything in the past, any other administrator that actually had had a positive impact? You know, I, I, I have to confess to not being well enough informed. I'm not a part of the university administrative community of people going to conferences and stuff like that. There are thoughtful people out there. I, I, I know I have been ranting. I know that I have been, you know, very angry and whatnot. There are, I mean, some of my friends, the, the president of the university at Brown, whom I was very critical of because I think that letter was a mistake, is a good person. Um, she's a competent administrator, but I think she made a mistake, okay? That's my opinion. The provost of the university, a man called Richard Locke, a political scientist, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine. He's, he's, a, he's a very effective human being, a great manager of this uh, institution, its faculty and its resources and, and so forth. There must be many thoughtful university administrators. There have to be some who are so thoughtful that even as they undertook the necessary, politically necessary task of issuing these uh, platitudinous statements, looked in the mirror and said, God, I hate that I have to do this. There gotta be some people like that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know how they co collaborate with one another and what the forms would be, I assume it's a management issue. You got, you know, the thing can blow up. I mean, it would be very easy to have a bunch of students sitting in your office for six months. You know, all you have to do is say Columbus Day should be maintained and don't change the name to Indigenous Peoples Day. 
Now, there had to be some people at places like Brown, I'm not implicating anybody in particular, who thought Columbus Day was just fine. Who thought it's it's complicated, man. The history of the world is very complicated. Yes, indeed, the native people of the North American and South American continent were decimated as a consequence of the European incursion. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, that's true. It's also true that we walk on the on the uh, ground created by that history. That is the modern world. That's the world that we live in. Okay. It can't be that our only response to the monumental transformation of human existence on this planet, which has incurred in the last 500 years, is to wag a finger at a fucking racist. It can't possibly be that that's the only thing to say. It can't be, it can't be. Uh, let me push the point further. Our civilization sits on a European foundation. In very substantial part. I did not say that no one has contributed. I did not say that. I'm saying the modern world, astrophysics, um, uh, the computer. Where do you think these, you know, sit, you can trace the evolution of our understanding of the world, the origin of the species. Okay. Economics. The, the, now, now, there are reasons for that. Why the Industrial Revolution happened where it did? What about the you know creation of the you know political environment in which universities could flourish? What about the accidents of the you know? I mean, there you know whatever. But but the idea that I, I have to avoid dead white men when in fact I live in a world that was created by them in very substantial part. Can we can, you know sort of keep balance on these things? So. Um, I'm, 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 I'm afraid I'm uh, wandering from the point a little bit. University administrators, uh, some of whom have to have a more uh, nuanced and complicated view, but have to be very careful about what they say, because if they say the wrong thing, uh, you know, they will, in effect, be rendered uh, neutered uh, because, you know, the institution has to function and they have to maintain peace. So well, we can try to find prominent public intellectuals from outside of administration to come in and take leadership roles and shake things up at a university, would that be an effective? Well, you need trustees who are willing to put institutions in the hands of people. And if you're trying to recruit me in the university administration, you can forget about it, Richard. Attempt number two, I'm not gonna give up. It would be so much fun. And our regents would go for it if we could just get them to listen to us. Well, I don't know. You know, I got to do something with the rest of my time. I'm 72 years old, but I had rather imagined a more quiet life, you know, just kind of reading and, you know, doing webinars oh. and, 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 you're doing. No, 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 but that's not, the world. That, that's not what you're doing lately, though. I mean, you, yeah. perhaps you became, you pointed out that your letter somehow sparked a lot of interest from people more than maybe some of the papers you've written, great papers you've written through your career, right? Um, yeah. And, you, and you've reacted to that. You've been very vocal. You've been in a lot of podcasts. You have your show. There's a lot. I think you, 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 you engage more on those issues of late. Wouldn't you say that? Yeah, I have. I, I've been um, pressed into service by the, you know, evolution of events. Uh, the, um, you know, there's just so many things. I don't know when there was a moment, uh, but it's, it's, uh, uh, I guess George Floyd, I guess that's the, and then the riots, I wrote a piece in Quillette saying, renounce the, denounce the violence now, you know, unequivocally calling up all people to just speak out and say, this is, uh, this is, this is unacceptable. 
because I thought so. Um, but uh, things, uh, you know, just spun out of, spun out, seemed to spin out of control. So, I, I, you know, my conversations with John McWhorter, my partner at the Blogging Heads, uh, have, have uh, gone in this uh, kind of direction. And there's just been such an uh, outpouring of um, interest uh, expressed by people. I've given interviews to, I don't know, a dozen foreign outlets uh, in Australia, in Austria, in uh, Russia, in Ireland, in Italy. Um, there is a full page photograph of me <laughs> in Le Mans. You know, Le Mans, the French newspaper, in their Sunday magazine, like the New York Times Sunday magazine, the glossy uh, thing. There's a full page photograph of me in this That's French cool. magazine, because I'm one of four contrarian black intellectuals who have been willing to be critical of Black Lives Matter. It's me, the young Coleman Hughes at, uh, uh, at uh, I guess he's at the Manhattan Institute now. He was at uh, Columbia. He's an undergraduate, a very brilliant young man. Uh, John McWhorter and, um, um, and uh, God, he's, he's the guy. He's actually on the cover of the magazine. I'll think of his name momentarily. Uh, Oh God, I can't think of his name. Oh, Thomas Chatterton Williams. Thomas oh, yeah. Chatterton Williams, the writer. If we are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as far as the liberals are concerned, as far as the Tanahasi Coltses and the Nicole Hannah Joneses and the Eva Duvernays and the you know the cognoscenti of woke black intellectuality, you know, uh, the people with three names is what John. Big Warder calls them Michael, Eric, Dyson, and you know, uh, etc. Uh, we are the apocalypse, uh, but uh, there we are. We there we are. So a, a lot of people all over the world are interested in what's going on in the United States, and because of the technology now, uh, I'm in communication with them. So has it been has it been fun or or do you get do you get a lot of uh do you have any negative press as well i mean you got a lot of positive i think feedback but but any, yeah any, i mean any... i you know the likes are like uh, 20 to 1 over the uh the thumbs up versus the thumbs down in the social media thing um i put out something on the 1619 project all i did was retweet uh a uh, newspaper report about how the new york times is in something of turmoil about the 1619 project uh, because Brett Stevens, their relatively conservative op, uh, uh, editorial page columnist, op-ed, wrote a column criticizing the newspaper's own 1619 project, which was this massive journalistic um, undertaking to um, affirm a view about the American founding that would place the year 1619 uh, ahead of the year 1776 in terms of when the countries truly came into existence. It's a long story. If you don't know what it is, I'm not going to try to tell you now. Bottom line is um, it had like, I don't know, 3,000 likes. It, it got retweeted 800 times. You know, so there, there are a lot of people out there who just are like, and, and I get these uh, letters, these love letters really from, from people who are watching my podcast saying, you are the reason that I am still sane. Thank God for avoid, you know, I mean, literally, I've gotten hundreds of notes like this over the last six months of people saying, uh, your podcast is a lifeline. Thank God for what you're doing. Please don't stop. How can I help? I got people saying, 
give me your home address and I'll mail you a check. And I won't give it because I'm not sure that it's not somebody who wants to <laughs> mail me something else. <laughs> but so there's a hunger out there for there to be a, a counterpoint because, and I, I, mean, I just have to say this since you guys let me talk without restraint. Journalism has failed us massively. I mean, you got you got some people with integrity like um, uh, Matt Taibbi, uh, like uh, Glenn Greenwald. Uh, you could probably name a few others. Uh, who, who, who you know, who I read it and I say, yeah, this person seems to be an honest broker, and they actually are thinking about the concern. But but the the capture of newsrooms by uh, uh, ideologically uh, uh, driven. Uh, people who think they have, think about the temerity of it, the, the arrogance of it. You think your moral judgment is of such a certitude that you can impose it on the masses by tailoring what they get to read so as to confirm and reaffirm your view of the world. Mostly peaceful protests. The news was the violence. I'm not doing a statistical head count about how many people were, were, were peaceful. What I'm saying is the news was the attack on police officers. The news was the three people who got shot and killed in the ruckus at the edge of the mob. The news was the family that worked for 20 years to build a business that got burned down in a night by a bunch of people who, when you take a very good look at them, well, you know, they're not exactly so admirable. That was the news. They edited it out. How dare they? Who do they think they are? So let's take some questions here from the audience. See if anybody wants to ask a question. Can you, can you just ahead, make me aware of the time? Because I really Of course. Yes, yes. So just a few more minutes. We, we, we should, should wrap up. Okay, we've been about an hour. Right now, so. um, if anybody that's live in the audience right now want to ask a question, if you raise your hand, I can call you up and you can talk. And we have a few in the... Uh... There's a few in the Q&A, but I think it would be nice if people join in. I can promote you to a speaker if you choose to do so. I guess we don't. So go ahead, read one of the, the, the ones in the Q&A. All right. Maybe the last one is a good one. Oh, the last one? You want to read it? Or? Oh, you want me to read it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So our, another anonymous, wisely anonymous attendee. Uh, is asking why can't we evaluate the performance of affirmative action and diversity inclusion and equity administrators on their own stated goal if they have failed to solve the problem they've identified when do we get to say that assuming they have identified a real problem they have failed and should resign or be replaced and we should try a new and different method any criteria for judging yeah well if it's the headcount criteria they're they're going to be able to say, you know, we raised the proportion of the minority faculty from X to Y. Um, I, I guess it's who are we when you say we judge, because um, I've begun to think a little bit about the administrative uh, behemoth, which, you know, the office of the associate provost, the deputy vice president, the, you know, of diversity and inclusion is almost a kind of uh, um union or, you know, advocacy group within the university administration on behalf of the interests of the black, uh, of the faculty of color. The, the main agenda is uh, faculty hiring. There are other issues, but the main issue 
is faculty hiring and they're they're a lobby they're 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 kind of so i would evaluate them from that point of view if i understood their function to be advancing the interests of african americans making sure that the uh, ethnic studies is adequately funded ma making sure that the scholarship for students of color fund is uh, is is managed effectively and uh, whatnot and making sure that the black alumni are happy when they come back for the fifth the tenth and the twenty fifth uh, you know, uh, anniversary of their graduation, uh, that they feel like their institution, you know, is, is somehow connected with them. I assume that's the portfolio of one of these kinds of positions. Um, and they, they would be judged by their management of that portfolio. I would, however, want to take a broader view and ask whether or not the functionality of that uh, office is really rationalizable, can be made sense of within the context of some broader mission of the university. And I've been skeptical about that. I've voiced, my, I've voiced my skepticism. Here's what I think. I think all of our great universities that are prepared to put hundreds of millions, indeed in total billions of dollars into diversity initiatives ought to take those funds um, and use them to enhance our knowledge and our effective response to the problems of poverty and privation uh, in our society. Uh, they can cure disease. They can enhance the educational effectiveness. They can learn how it is that you deal with people who are behaviorally uh, impaired in one way or another, they can, you know, whatever, and they can make the society a better place. And that not a penny of it, not a penny goes to somebody with a PhD uh, who is trading on the color of their skin or their uh, sexuality. Uh, <laughs> that would be an extreme view. You could defend it based upon a humanitarian argument that was transracial, and you would have to stand your ground in order to do so. And it's unlikely to ever happen. But that's how I would evaluate it based on, uh, you know, uh, in the case of the institution at hand, the quality of the faculty and what we're delivering to students and whatnot. But, you know, that that would just be me. So we had a hand up here from Caroline Thomas. Are you still there, Caroline? Do you wanna? Yes, so Megan, can you try to promote her to speak? There you go, Caroline, go ahead. Um, my question is, well, you say that, you know, um, the fault, um, it's not the fault of the physics department that there isn't a black professor, it's the fault of uh, high schools. And we as academics, um, why would we cite, you know, someone who is considered an underrepresented minority, if they were that good, they would have made it into a better journal in the first place. But so do we just wash our hands of the issue altogether? Is there nothing that we can do? Is there no role for us at all to sit, sit back and, and say that the problem isn't ours? Okay, uh, Caroline, thank you for the question. No, I wouldn't, uh, uh, here's what I would say. I would say focus on developing the capacities of people to compete uh, rather than changing the standards or criteria for judging uh, effective performance. So in the case of uh, the scholars, uh, if you if the goal is that there are not enough women publishing in economics or in physics and we want there to be more women, don't tell the physicists that they have to go out of their way to cite women whose research would not otherwise have warranted their citation. Instead, uh, develop some programs that uh, attract uh, uh, talented women into the study, of, in this case of physics, that uh, perhaps underwrite uh, extra efforts to try to ensure that they are uh, uh, in uh, undergraduate school uh, getting the right kind of exposure that would allow them to be effective in 
competing for entry into really strong graduate programs that would, at the end of the day, there will be some uh, winnowing down, but that would leave you with a, a strong population of, of, of women who were in uh, good uh, researchers in that field. Um, and then uh, uh, re relying on the fair execution of the uh, hiring of the journal administration and so forth to allow this cream to come to the top. I focus on developing their capacities co to compete rather than on uh, jiggering around the, uh, the criteria. Now, let me say this having said that, it might be in certain areas of scholarly inquiry that an insider's club of people who have a particular school of thought have got control of the journal and they won't let anybody else's stuff in. You know, if it were Marxist and you were, you know, a neoclassical economist and you couldn't get your paper published because the Marxists wouldn't publish your paper, of course, that's an extreme example. Historically, not relevant now, but maybe at some point in some places that would have been relevant as an example. But um, in any case, it might be that an insider's club of uh, people who have a particular school of thought are unwilling to uh, uh, judge fairly. And in that case, you were going to need some kind of intervention. But um, the idea that that is based on race, you know, white people don't want to allow black scholars to be published, uh, I would seriously question. I'd certainly seriously question in any of the, any of the quantitative fields. It may be that when you get into literature, uh, the uh, criteria of judgment are going to somehow be more complicated and intertwined with identity dynamics, what people find to be interesting and compelling may depend in ways on identity. And it may be that those uh, fields, uh, there's a, a sense, you know, women or blacks or uh, gays uh, are shut out, uh, might have more, uh, uh, more justification for it. But I certainly don't see that in economics. All right, we'll have time for one more question before we have to wrap up. Anybody else in the audience? Let's see here, just see if people can raise their hand, feature on Zoom. All right, Richard, do you have one more before we go? Uh, I'm good. You're good? All right. <laughs> it was gonna be too so, dangerous, I, I had my limits. <laughs> okay, the last one here. Okay, somebody said thanks, Gilan here, and uh, Carolyn, thank you. Um, so yes, thanks everybody for joining up, and, and Glenn, thanks so much for your time and, and for all you've been doing lately. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs.